the commentator on, on this very rich set of, of findings is Robert Bertram, who's the chief scientist in the USAID Bureau for Food Security. He's previously served as the director of the Office of Agricultural Research and Policy in the Bureau for Food Security. Um, his academic background, he's a real scientist, uh, plant breeding, genetics, all those things, <coughs> mysteries to us as economists, but we're very pleased to, to have him here to give a commentary on this. Thank you, Ian, and uh, I think there's probably a reason why they asked a non-economist to be the commentator, but... Uh, so I think this was a, a really timely uh, set of discussions we just heard. I want to just say a couple things that didn't come out in the presentation but in the paper. They used the term agro-pessimism for what we went through in the 1990s and up until 2008. And I had always referred to this as playing defense for all these years, because but I love the term agro-pessimism and, and we'll come back to that. Um, so running through this, this is going to be sort of a stream of consciousness. I think. A big issue that struck me is this question of direct versus indirect beneficiaries and what that means for investment in terms of agricultural productivity growth. In term, and, what, and I say this in part because what we found, for example, in AID and Feed the Future is that where we had problems was in moving depth of poverty. So a takeaway from that has been, well, let's figure out how to get those people more involved in production. And I'm really questioning whether, personally I'm questioning whether that's the right angle on that or should we be trying to understand better what are the opportunities that those uh, poorest people, people without land and so forth, or people in hinterland areas, what, what are their best opportunities? So I, I think that's going to be a, a, a really critical discussion going forward in my own agency and elsewhere. Um, I, this, the issue of off-farm employment, and I was very heartening to hear that both trade and transport and agro-processing came out really well in terms of poverty impacts from non-agricultural, because that's some of the areas that when we talk about a food system, that's right where our thinking goes. And of course, trade can drive demand as well as buffer shocks. Um, so I like the fact that you got away from a monolithic approach to ag and non-ag and, and, and understanding this market subsistence and the fact that most rural producers are now net consumers remains very important. I'm so grateful to have a focus on the impact of low food prices. I have to say I talk about that a lot, but with a lot of people they want to think about producer income benefits. And I kind of think we might be having the wrong end of the stick. The thing that did surprise me, particularly in Will's comments, was this idea that um, productivity grain that drives down prices would necessarily drive down incomes for producers. I thought you might, I mean, what I'd always thought that this was a sweet spot where you could get, be able to sell at lower prices but still potentially make more money because of productivity gains. So maybe that's something that can, can come out in the discussion. Um, on the nutrition piece, uh, not surprising that it's contextual, I, um, the issue of um, 
diversification came to mind. We know from some work that shows that in a monomodal environment, a single crop staple, that is not, even if you do everything right agronomically, use the best seeds, et cetera, you're not going to get out of poverty. So diversification has to come into it. How that, what that diversification looks like uh, is critical. Uh, you can bring in poultry, but then you need to make sure that children and the chickens are not playing together. You know, there's things like that that go together, or else you wipe out those nutritional gains. There's similar gains on the, on the large animal side that can be had. I think we have evidence for that. Um, so let's see. I struggle with the issue of the countries uh, as they go up in income, and it made me think of Ghana. Ghana's not just, I mean, it's a very heterogeneous country. What do we do in a country like Ghana where there are still children with red hair and swollen stomachs in the north and income is going towards this over this $3,000 a year rate? So I would like to hear some comments about heterogene heterogeneous countries and what that means for our sorts of investment. Um, let's see. That again, on this, I really would love to understand more the depth of poverty effects of agricultural growth and the best way to get um, at that. Be interested to know, I think it was um, uh, Luke, you mentioned this middle sector in Tanzania, uh, not manufacturing, not farm. You mentioned that there was, or somebody mentioned there was higher productivity there. It'd be interesting to know what that sector looked like. Um, let's see. Yeah, we're just going to skip ahead here. Sorry for this. And then, um, again, re recognizing that the poorest benefit most from the lower real cost of food, critical to our understanding. Um, I was curious about the household labor dynamics, um, uh, partly because we're so interested in seeing mechanization and irrigation come into sub-Saharan Africa, perhaps through service provision. We can learn a lot from the Asian model where that's been so effective in countries like Bangladesh. Um, uh, but this household labor phenomenon, Bangladesh is very highly densely populated. I wonder what, what that would look like in the African context in terms of how, how much household labor could emerge. I think there's so much migratory um, labor, particularly by men in Africa. Um, let's see. So I guess the other thing on, on this um, infrastructure, great to hear that point emphasized. Um, I can't help but think that it is an existential challenge for Africa's uh, producers to provide the needs for Africa's cities and towns that are where you have growing demand for quality diversified foods. Those are nutritious foods. They're not the ones driving a negative dietary transition, but they're also great opportunities for income. So uh, the infrastructure is going to be a key piece in that. Uh, it's a huge contributor to market efficiency, which we look at as a key piece of productivity gains And if we're thinking about the agri-food system. So we'd uh, be very uh, interested in, in seeing um, more understanding of how we can uh, connect those rural producers with uh, rural demand, particularly in the African context where infrastructure has been more of a challenge, recognizing that 
information, we've had big leapfrogs because people, there's tra price transparency now. Uh, Smallholder farmers in remote areas have a much better sense of what kind of price they can be, get, be getting in the urban market or the people they sell to, so they're much less likely to um, uh, uh, be, I guess, price takers. Let's put it that way. So um, I think there were other things. There were just wonderful insights that came out of this. Um, but uh, again, great to have it reaffirmed that agricultural growth remains the, the most effective means of helping the very poor. I think any help you can give us on understanding the dynamics within the poor, you talked about the difference between this, was it the 75 cents and $1.25 or $1.25? Understanding those things and how, what do we need to do to reach the poorer and is that a direct route towards them or is it by investing in things where they can step into opportunities? I mean, the, the beauty of agriculture-led growth is that it drives demand for locally produced goods and services. And, and so I, I, this is a, sort of an existential issue for us, I think, at the moment in terms of how we go forward and are most effective in, 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 in moving the needle forward on uh, child stunting, on extreme poverty reduction, and uh, of course the nutrition discussion, whole other angle, it's not surprising, it's contextual, lots of opportunity. Thanks everybody. <laughs>